Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. Welcome to All Together Now, Fridays with the Moth. I'm your host for this week, Anna Roberts. As manager of the MothWorks program and the most recent addition to the Moth team, I began this role from home on March 17th. And although I haven't had the pleasure of meeting most of my colleagues in person, many of them have seen the inside of my apartment. Right now, as many of us are taking on new roles as teachers, activists, allies, and more, it reminds me that the work begins when we call up the courage to accept the challenge. On the podcast today, two stories about perception and strength. First up, Shannon Kaysen. Shannon told this story at a New York City Story Slam where the theme of the night was uniform. Here's Shannon, live at the Moth. My dad wore big hats and double-breasted suits and talked big when we drove around Detroit in his Cadillac. He said it was triple black. I was a kid, I asked him, like, like what's triple black? He said, my Cadillac, boy. <laughs> I'm like, dad, no, I mean, like, what, what does triple black mean? He was quiet, I don't think he knew what it meant, but. <laughs> My dad, he always got a big answer. He say, uh, black on the outside, black on the inside, and a black man driving, triple black. <laughs> then something happened, and my dad blamed it on this guy named Reagan and this thing called Reaganomics. And then he didn't wear the big hat as much or the double-breasted suit. Somebody came and, and took the Cadillac and the Toyota we would drive around Detroit would leak on the, through the sunroof on rainy days. But my, my dad still talked big. I was with him when he found another Cadillac. This one was huge. We pulled into the parking lot, and I remember he got out the car excited, and I looked at it, and it had rust on it. It was black and big, but it had rust and stucco and, and uh, uh, chrome and gold-plated trim. And I, <laughs> My thought was, this thing is tacky. <laughs> but my dad was so excited, he was telling me how, he said it was a limousine, he was like, what he's gonna do with it, and, and excitement could be contagious, and after a while I said, man, this limo is fresh. <laughs> this was the 80s, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> fresh. I never should have said that. Eighth grade graduation. It wasn't the highlight of my scholastic career, but being, I went to a high school with a 50% dropout rate, it was a big deal for 50% of the students, you know. <laughs> uh, kids were talking about wearing tuxedos to the graduation. People were talking about like boyfriend and girlfriend dressing in the same colors, and, and people were talking about getting limos. <laughs> I had came home from playing basketball 
And my sister said, Daddy, Daddy said to beep them. So I went into the kitchen phone and I, I beeped them. This is how you did it in the 80s, you know. <laughs> and uh, uh, he called back. He said, yeah, man, uh, you got the graduation coming up, right? Uh, I know how much you love the limousine, you know. Uh, your dad's going to take you to the graduation in a limousine, let you high post show off to your friends. And then he got off the phone. I was mortified. <laughs> I did not want to drive in that Bishop Don Juan, Superfly, any black exploitation movie you can, the Willie Dynamite, uh, Dolomite. I didn't want to ride in that thing. Like I could imagine getting out. I was an understated like Boy Scout. I was uh, good in school. I played basketball. I was a virgin. I, I just made up in my mind, like, this is Detroit. Cars is very big deal in Detroit. I was like, I just got to take this one for the team. <laughs> Graduation day. My mother's running around. She's taking Polaroids. I'm like, Ma, save it for college or at least for high school because it's eighth grade graduation. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Then my, my sister comes in and says, uh, your da dad is on the phone. So I go in the phone kitchen. Hey, man, I got to run across town. I got to go over here to the east side, pick up this money. I'm not going to be able to drive you to the graduation. I know you're disappointed. Just go there with your mom, and uh, uh, I'll be there in time to see you cross over. <laughs> so I ride to the graduation in my mom's Ford Granada, which is the plainest car ever. And we get to the graduation, and I get out the car, and I'm looking at all my classmates and some of my friends. They're getting out of limousines. Some of them had white tuxedos with top hats and canes <laughs> going to the graduation. And I remember I, I looked at myself in the, in the glass of the gymnasium, and I just, I was like, man, I, I just always look so ragged. And we did the graduation thing, and my dad showed up. He always, you know, keeps his word. He showed up to see me. And uh, after the graduation, I walked down. We was going to go to Red Lobster after the graduation. That's where you go after a graduation in Detroit. You know, Red Lobsters with an S, you know. And uh, I said, uh, hey, Dad, I'm going to ride with you. And we walked out of the gymnasium, and my dad took me to this this fly limousine, and he held the door for me. And I got inside while all my classmates and friends watched. And I kind of felt like someone special. Thank you. That was Shannon Kaysen. Shannon moved back to Detroit from Chicago in 2015 to be part of his city's renaissance. He's a storyteller, and he hosts the long-standing podcast, Homemade Stories. His newest podcast is called In Good Company Detroit, and it highlights the entrepreneurial spirit of his hometown. You can find both wherever you listen to your podcasts. To see some photos of Shannon's father, who still drives a Cadillac, and to learn more about Shannon's work, head to the extras for this episode on our website, themoth.org. Up next, June Cross. June told this story at a main stage in New York City, where the theme of the night was Walk the Line, stories of balancing acts. Here's June, live at the Moth.
Every family has secrets. In my family, the secret was me. I was secret because I was black. These days, you'd say I was biracial. But in the 50s, when you were born, there was no biracial. You were either born black or you were born white. End of story. My mother was a farm girl from Pocatello, Idaho, who'd come to New York to seek her fame and fortune here on the big stage. She met my dad, who was a performer from Philadelphia. He was part of a, a duo called Stump and Stumpy. He'd been popular in the 40s. They met backstage at the Paramount Theater and pretty much became constant companions for the next four or five years. And here I am. But as the 50s progressed, my dad's career began to go downhill. And as his career began to go downhill, so did his life. And he drank more and more. And the more he drank, the angrier he got. And in some kind of twisted sort of vision, he thought that if he beat my mother long enough, she'd stay with him. My mother had sunk pretty low, but she hadn't sunk so low that she was willing to stay with a man who beat her every day. So sooner or later, she got up. I was about 18 months old. She left him, and we moved into another apartment um, in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And that's where I lived with her for the next four or five years. But there was one problem. She had left, she had had the courage to get into a relationship with a black man, but she didn't have the courage to raise this child who looked like me, who was me. And so she began to leave me for periods of time with a friend of hers in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Um, it was a couple that she called Peggy and Paul, and whom I would come to call Aunt Peggy and Uncle Paul. And I would go and I would stay with them for periods of time. And gradually one day, it was about a week before I would have started my first day of school, she left me there. And I never came back to New York. And she... So the way it worked was this. I would go to school Monday through Friday in Atlantic City. Um, and then on school vacations or breaks, I would come visit my mom here in New York. Um, and I really lived two lives. I lived a life uh, where I liked, um, <laughs> I lived when I was with my mom, the life where I liked Perry Como and the Beatles and Barbara Streisand. And then when I was in Atlantic City, I lived a life where I liked the Four Tops and James Brown. Um, and uh, that's sort of the way life went. Aunt Peggy was a very strict disciplinarian. She thought that my mother had been way too lenient with me, which mom had been. There was no structure in mom's house. When I lived in Atlantic City, mom had, Aunt Peggy had structure. If you can imagine trying to live with two mothers, having one is bad enough. Here I had two. <laughs> I had one very strict one, and one who was actually very demanding. My mom was very demanding, but when I would go to visit my mother on weekends, there was absolutely no structure. We would leave the Port Authority, go out, head out to the uh, rotisserie chicken place across the street from uh, Port Authority, pick up a chicken, go home, eat dinner at 11.30 at night, stay up and watch whatever was on television as long as I wanted until I fell asleep. And then the next day, we would get up, go to a matinee, usually on Broadway. We might go to a second one on Saturday night, and then to whatever we could watch on Sunday, matinee as well, before I got back on the bus and went to Atlantic City, went back to Atlantic City. It was almost like, I used to liken it to crossing a razor blade. Um, 
And if I crossed it carefully, it would scrape instead of cut. Six years went by in this fashion, and gradually she began to date other men, and finally she began dating um, a comic and character actor, who some of you may know, um, he was Larry Storch. He became uh, Corporal Acorn in the series F Troop in the 60s. And uh, mom was elated that she'd finally found a man and thought she was finally gonna be able to actually get him to marry her, which had been the driving force of her life, <laughs> to try to become Mrs. Somebody. Um, and one night, one day while I was here, one weekend while I was here in New York, she threw a party for Larry and his family and the managing agent. And she asked me to play a game with her. And the game was call her Aunt Norma during the entire period of this party. And being eight years old and not knowing really what she was asking me to do, I said, fine, I will. And I did. But at some point during the uh, evening, the adults started giving me champagne. Being a showbiz crowd, it was, they sort of, it was sort of cute to see a, um, a sort of tipsy eight-year-old running around the house. And I slipped, and I called her mom. And she snatched me and dragged me into the bathroom. And really, her face was so contorted with, I thought then was anger, but what I now know was fear. And she said, don't you ever call me mommy in front of people like this. Don't ever call me mommy in front of Larry's family. He'll be, they will disown him and we'll lose everything. And I hung my head, not knowing quite what I had done. And I said, yes, Aunt Norma, I won't. And I went back to Atlantic City and I told Aunt Peggy and Uncle Paul about this and they were horrified. Um, and then several months later, when mom called to say that she was going to become Mrs. Larry Storch, that her dream was finally going to be fulfilled, I was as elated as she was. I was jumping all around the house. Oh, I'm going to be the child of, daughter of a star, daughter of a star. And we hung up the phone, and Aunt Peggy pulled me aside and said, not so fast. You need to make sure that you never tell anybody that your mom is married to Larry Storch. If it's found out that, uh, that he's, you know, he's married to a woman that had a black child his entire career could go south. They'll cancel the show that he's in. All those ballet classes and um, tap dance classes and swimming lessons and piano lessons and the summer camp that you love, that'll all disappear. She was trying to get me to understand the economic price of being black in this country, which during the 60s was still pretty severe. And frankly, it still is. In 1960, according to the census, something like 25, there were only 25 black millionaires in the United States of America, which is an amazing thought to think about. And so the money that she and Paul got to help raise me was really important in our family. So I learned that I was just going to be black. And I was fine with that. By the time I had reached college, I was blacker than now. <laughs> We got to the 60s, you have to remember, I'm growing up at the same time that the country is going through the Vietnam War crisis and, uh, and African-Americans as a whole are sort of reaching the point where we've sort of had it. Um, this is the period when Cassius Clay beat Sonny Liston and changed his name to Muhammad Ali. It's the period when Stokely Carmichael invented the phrase black power. Um, I went to work with the Black Panther program. I, you know, served breakfast in Atlantic City, New Jersey. I sold the papers as long as Aunt Peggy would let me, and she found out about that and put the kibosh on that pretty fast. 
And by the time I got to school, I was uh, sort of, um, you know, really determined that I was going to live my life as a black woman. There was a group on campus of um, multiracial students. There was a multiracial, I think they called themselves the Multiracial Students, Harvard Students Alliance or something like this. And I refused to join them because I didn't want to have anything to do with being multiracial. If I was multiracial, why had I just lived this entire painful existence that I'd been growing up with? And sure enough, I, I chose my side. And then in November of that year, my freshman year, my mother calls me. She's having her 50th birthday party. She's decided to have it in Las Vegas. Now, as a card-carrying member of the Black Panther Party and an avowed socialist at the time, <laughs> going to Las Vegas was a counter-revolutionary act. <laughs> I couldn't figure out what I was going to do. But Aunt Peggy had raised me to always do what my parents told me to do. So mom was turning 50 and she wanted me to come to Las Vegas. I was going to have to figure out a way to go to Las Vegas. But I went to Las Vegas on my terms. I had this big afro that was like, you know, bigger than Angela Davis's. <laughs> uh, some of you remember the Roberta Flack's first album. <laughs> I had a leather miniskirt and my leather high-heeled boots and my fishnet stockings. And I arrived at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas to a sea of white folks wearing chiffon and Indian and coral turquoise jewelry. <laughs> and I didn't want to have anything to do with them, but there I was with my mom and with Larry. She was wearing a Ralph Lauren original navy blue rayon long uh, gown and a white feathered uh, headdress, looking gorgeous, as she always did. Um, and she wanted to go see Johnny Cash for her 50th birthday. Now, black folks don't listen to country music in <laughs> Atlantic City, New Jersey. So this really wasn't happening for me. I was like, Johnny Cash, are you serious? So we go to, we, I had to go because she was going. So we go and we're sitting in the grand ballroom of Caesar's Palace, which I think at the time was the largest place I'd ever been in. It was just huge. And Larry looks around and all of a sudden he sees the heavyweight champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, sitting a few tables away. And we get up and we go to meet Muhammad Ali. Muhammad Ali, at that time, who was still the heavyweight champ, was still in shape. He was the biggest man I have ever met. Huge, just, he was like, it was like meeting the Berlin Wall. <laughs> <laughs> he put his hand out to shake mine and I felt like a six-year-old, my hand just disappeared inside of his. But as I looked around, I'm seeing he and I are probably the only black folks in the grand ballroom of Caesar's Palace. So I decided that I was going to rib him a little bit because I was so shy that that was the only thing I could do was use laughter to try to get out of the situation. So I said, hey, champ, how come you and I are the only black people in here getting ready to listen to Johnny Cash? And he says to me, girl, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky. Where I came from, there's a whole lot of black people listening to country music. <laughs> So this sort of put a damper on my, you know, my revolutionary, my revolutionary fervor, and I go and I sit down and I'm listening to uh, Johnny Cash begins to play. I'd never really listened to Johnny Cash. I didn't realize the, um, the degree of talent, the degree of emotion that the man brought forth from, the, from a, an acoustic guitar in his voice. And as he sang the song, it was almost a trite reaction, but as he sang the song, I Walk the Line, I felt like he was singing it to me. I felt like he was describing my entire life. I had grown up in a world where my friends were either black or white, where my family was either black or white, 
where I listened to music that was identified as music that black people listen to or as music that white people listen to. I dressed the way I thought black people should dress. I talked the way I thought black people should talk. But that night, the champ and Johnny Cash taught me a lesson. The lesson was that maybe I could balance myself on that razor and walk the line and have the people that I loved and the things that I like be on both sides in me and not have to choose. Thank you. That was June Cross. June is a documentary filmmaker, journalist, and the author of the memoir, Secret Daughter, a mixed race daughter and the mother who gave her away. Listening to Shannon and June's stories got me thinking about being a kid when you're told who you are by adults before you have the experience to decide for yourself. When I was little, every summer, my family packed up our station wagon and drove to my granny's place in Maine. I'd hunt for the best soft ice cream with my mom and drag the old rowboat into the lake with my dad in search of lily pads and dragonflies. I still remember those summers with this idyllic, hazy glow. My brother, cousin, and I were all born in July, so these trips felt like a big birthday celebration just for us. The boys were born days apart, almost exactly six years after me, and nearly every adult in my family had taken to referring to them as identical, but actually they look nothing alike. My brother and I are biracial, our dad is black, and our mom is white. And my cousin's mop of ginger hair and complete lack of melanin give it away immediately. But as a kid, I saw the resemblance. They were identical. After all, my papa was black and my granny was white. Their sons, my dad and my uncle, are black. Their daughters, my aunts, are white. We're all one family, so why would it matter that our skin colors were different? I knew nothing then about the intricacies of blended families or the deliberate choices my relatives made over two generations to ensure their kids always felt deeply connected to one another, regardless of DNA. Stories help us understand who we were, who we are, and who we want to become. If Shannon and June's stories have inspired you to tell one of your own, here are some questions to get you started. Has someone else's perception of you changed how you see yourself? What about a time you defied what you were told, by accident or on purpose? How about a moment you realized you didn't have to choose between two sides of yourself? You can also find these prompts in the extras for this episode on our website, themoth.org extras. That's all for this week. Until next time, from all of us here at The Moth, have a story-worthy week. Anna Roberts is the manager of the MothWorks program. Raised by artists and educators, she's driven by fairness, progressive action, and amplifying the perspectives of women and people of color. If you want to chat about bringing the moth to your workplace, reach out at aroberts at themoth.org. Podcast production by Julia Purcell. The Moth Podcast is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange, helping make public radio more public at prx.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.